Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Good evening, everyone. Uh, I'd like to welcome all of you to our conversation tonight. Um, and I hope that uh, you're looking forward to this. Uh, yet another insightful evening with NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. And I know that we are uh, getting all of you away from your digital norms into a different norm tonight to speak about beauty and physics. And I hope that you will be excited as the rest of the team to welcome Sabine Hossen Felder, who will speak with us on uh, the how beauty leads physics astray. So tonight we'll be talking about the ability to develop fundamentally new laws of nature. Theoretical physicists often rely on arguments from beauty, simplicity and naturalness in particular have been strongly influential guides in the foundation of physics ever since the development of the standard model of particle physics. This talk would demonstrate that argument from beauty uh, that have led the field into a dead end, uh, cons- uh, into an end, uh, a dead end and considers what can be done about it. So I would like to welcome first uh, with us here tonight, Sabine Hossenfelder. Uh, who is a research fellow from Frankfurt Institute for Advanced uh, Studies. Uh, Sabine is a researcher and she's specializing in theoretical physics and quantum gravity. She worked uh, and is still working as a researcher at the Frankfurt Institute of Advanced uh, Studies, uh, where she is in charge of a group, a research group dedicated to gravity analysis. She dedicated herself to obtaining a master and doctorate um, at the uh, jo- Johann Wolfgang uh, Goethe University in Frankfurt. After that, she as well obtained her PhD in physics uh, with a thesis entitled Black Holes and Large Extra Dimensions. And I'm sure we'll get a lot of questions from our audience about this. Dr. Sabine Hosen. Uh, Hosen Dolfe received a research fellowship from the University of Arizona in uh, Tuscan in 2009. She was appointed as an assistant professor of theoretical uh, physics at the Institute of Advanced Study at the University of Frankfurt. uh, And in 2018, uh, she also uh, has been uh, a researcher at the Institute in charge of gravity analysis group. Uh, Sabine with us today uh, uh, because she acquired especially a special notoriety and I'm sure you follow her tweets online because I'm a follower of your tweets online Uh, as a science communicator among her achievements is the book that was published in 2018 and entitled Lost in Math How Beauty Leads Physics History. Hope that everyone in the audience will get a copy to just get and to this kind of connection between beauty and physics. Sabine, the floor is yours, and welcome on the Institute platform. Thank you so much for the introduction. Um, I'll try to share my screen, and uh, please bear with me. Uh, does this work? 
Perfectly. Okay, great. Okay, wonderful. So, um, as you just heard, I, I've been working in the foundations of physics for like about 20 years almost. And I want to start my presentation today by explaining why I'm here, why I'm talking to you, why I'm giving public lectures. Uh, in the past couple of years, um, I've become very outspokenly critical of what's going in on going on in the foundations of physics. Uh, and I'm giving public lectures. I've written a book. I have a YouTube channel. I've written contributions for uh, quite a few popular science magazines. And I want to put ahead today that the reason I'm doing this is not that I think there's something um, wrong with research in the foundations of physics. On the very contrary, I think it's it's super, super important and we have to push more on it. It's just that I think that the way it's being done right now, um, we're not making any progress and we have to work on this. And um, so before I tell you anything specifically, um, I have to make clear um, what I mean by the foundations of physics. Um, foundations of physics I refer to um, are those areas in physics where we are concerned with the natural laws that cannot be derived from any underlying laws. And that's currently the behavior of space and time, which is described by Einstein's theory of general relativity, and uh, then the smallest constituents of matter and how they interact, which is described by the standard model of particle physics. Those are only some parts of um, physics. There are lots of other areas um, which are not the foundations of physics, like optics, quantum optics, um, big parts of um, astrophysics, condensed matter physics, um, material science, uh, all that kind of stuff. So the, those are, at least in my vocabulary, not the foundations of physics. So in the end, that's just a terminology, but that's how I use the word. Um, there, there are always some physicists who are a little bit offended uh, that, that I don't count them to the foundations of physics, but if they <laughs> hear my criticism, they usually really believe that they are not in that group. Um, so, so what's going on in, in those areas of physics? Um, well, there's a lot of talk about crisis. Um, this isn't new. This has been going on for a long time. Crisis at the edge of physics. So that's the foundations of physics. Foundations of physics, it's got something to do with supersymmetry. Could there be a crisis in physics? Another crisis in physics is theoretical physics in crisis. Um, yeah, so we, we will die before we have the answer. So this all sounds very not good. Um, so um, what what are those people talking about? I should probably put ahead that if you talk to my colleagues in the foundations of physics, a lot of them would disagree that we have uh, that we have a crisis um, because they see a lot of progress around them. You know, it's not that people aren't doing anything. They're certainly writing papers, they're conferences, everything is very, very exciting. But if you look at what comes out in the end, it's not a terrible lot. And I think everyone who has looked at this objectively, like from, from the outside, uh, would agree that there is um, there has been pretty much no progress for a long time. Um, so we've seen this stagnation uh, pretty much since the mid-1970s. So we have general relativity on, on the one side, uh, as I said, on the foundations of physics, but 
that theory is more than 100 years old. And uh, on the particle physics side, we have the standard model, which was, for what the mathematical formulation is concerned, uh, completed in the mid-1970s. And so what's happened after this is certainly that uh, we have um, experimentally confirmed some of those particles in the standard model. Like in the 1970s, there were some of the uh, the heavier quarks had not yet been um, measured. Um, we have also later figured out that neutrinos have masses, so there's a particular type of particle that have masses, but the theory for this goes back to the 1950s. And um, the most recent experimental um, discovery has been the Higgs boson, which um, you probably remember made big headlines uh, in 2012, and this was kind of the last missing particle um, in the standard model. In general relativity, um, we've, we've confirmed um, the direct detection of gravitational waves, so they, they have been uh, indirectly confirmed um, several decades ago already. And we've also put the cosmological constant back in, um, and there has been a Nobel Prize for this, but the cosmological constant was also already introduced by Einstein. So it's, it's not like there's something new. So, so the mathematical formulation of those theories has remained entirely unchanged. And now you could say, well, maybe that's just it. You know, we've, we've done it. Those are the foundations of physics and that's the end of the story. We can, we can all go home uh, in that area. Uh, but no, we, we know that that's, um, n not it. Um, because the standard model doesn't fit with general relativity. We're missing a theory of quantum gravity. This is, in my mind, like the biggest shortcoming that we have in the foundations of physics right now. We know that nature somehow knows how to do it. We have all those particles in the standard model, and those particles have masses. And we know if you have a whole lot of them, they have a gravitational pull, and we can measure this. But we don't actually know how those quantum particles get their gravitational pull, because general relativity is not a quantum theory. Those those two sides just don't um, talk to each other. And um, this has been a longstanding problem. It's been known since the 1930s, but we have made pretty much no progress. And there are other problems in the foundations. For example, you've probably heard that astrophysicists say that about 85% uh, of all matter in the universe is a peculiar type that's called um, dark matter, which is not in the standard model. Um, so it's a little bit controversial. It could also be that instead we don't really understand how gravity works. Um, this is called modified gravity. So those are kind of the, the two competing uh, hypotheses. Uh, but what's certainly clear is that we that if we look out into the cosmos, uh, like not in, in our solar system, but uh, on the scale of galaxies or galaxy clusters or even galactic filaments uh, back in the early universe, cosmic microwave background, that kind of thing, then we just can't explain those observations if we just take the standard model and general relativity. Uh, it does work. So either way, whether there's a new type of matter or if we have to change something about gravity, um, the foundations can't be right exactly the way that we have them uh, right now. And of course, there are lots of other questions like the, the measurement problem, quantum mechanics, how did the universe begin, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, I'm, I'm sure those are questions that you have uh, talked about on other occasions, so I don't want to go through the whole list. I just want to give you a sense that um, it, th there are open questions. Also so we're definitely not done. 
And now you can say, well, um, why should we be worried that uh, progress has been slowing down? Those are hard questions. And maybe it's just really, really difficult to find an answer. So, so why worry? And uh, I would agree. Physics is a, is a very mature discipline. Uh, it's, it's one of the first disciplines of science that, that has ever appeared in, in the literature. And the simple things have just been done. So uh, to some extent, a, a slowdown is unsurprising. But we also have to take into account that the number of physicists uh, has been growing ex- exponentially uh, in, in the past 100 years or so. So there are also many more people working on it, which brings together much more, you know, total work time on those uh, big questions. Um, and um, also, as, as I said, it's not that people aren't doing anything. You know, they're hugely productive if you look at the amount of papers that they write. Um, it's just that all that work doesn't really lead to anything. And that brings up the question like, why not? Why why do they produce so many papers that are so completely useless? And um, I think the reason for this is um, that ultimately the problem is not that those questions are difficult, though they are, but those are also really, really smart people. Um, the reason is bad methodology and uh, groupthink. And, and I'll explain in more detail while I say that. I've been told I shouldn't call it groupthink. That's kind of impolite and just makes people aggressive. The technical term is social reinforcement. Uh, but the problem is if I say social reinforcement, then no one knows what I'm talking about. So I, I'll, I'll keep calling it groupthink. Um, the problem is, as the title of my talk already indicated, uh, physicists rely on arguments from beauty, uh, and they come in with different names. Naturalness is one of them. Uh, there's unification, there's simplicity, and so on and so forth. And, and I've written an entire book in which I go through those uh, different types of beauty and exactly how they enter the foundations of physics. But in this in this talk, I just want to give you a, a general overview on what's what's gone wrong. So the issue is that physicists think that the foundations of physics are not pretty enough. And then they invent theories that are prettier according to certain mathematical notions of beauty. And then they make predictions from those theories and are surprised if no evidence is found that supports their theories. And uh, an added problem is that they are largely unaware that this is what they are doing because those requirements of beauty have become mathematical standards. It's not you know, it's not like they write a paper and they start with saying, now I assume that this theory has to be really, really pretty. No, that's not the way that it works. They make an assumption like, um, we assume that the theory has to be technically natural. And then they write down an equation. And then they just assume that this equation has to be fulfilled. But they never stop and ask, why should we require this? Like, why does nature have to fulfill this criterion? And um, this has led to a lot of failed predictions. And you've, you, you've probably noticed this yourself. Like if you read headlines about the foundations of physics, um, they'll normally, if there's any experimental result, it, it'll just tell you they haven't found the thing. Like they haven't found this dark matter particle. Uh, they haven't found this fifth force. Um, you know, there's still no evidence for quantum gravity. Uh, they still haven't found any evidence uh, for parallel universes and so on and so forth. Maybe not so surprising. And if you if you read something about um, the ideas that they have, it, it'll always be something like, 
physicists think there may be, uh, I don't know, a new force. There may be another particle, and maybe we can see something with that with that kind of experiment. Um, so, and you know, my impulse is always to say, well, yeah, maybe, but maybe not, and then you never hear anything uh, about it again. So, uh, <laughs> I'm afraid that the. It, 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 it's fairly easy if you if you only read those headlines, you you become very cynical that, uh, about what people even get paid for uh, if they work in the foundations. And so here are some of those failed predictions that were based uh, on arguments um, of beauty. Um, one of them is a particle called the axion. So um, the the standard model um, that it contains twenty five particles and there are lots of different um, parameters uh, in the standard model. One of which is called the the theta parameter, and the theta parameter is is very small. It's actually so small that we're not sure if it's maybe not zero. And now the thing is that physicists don't like small numbers. Uh, if there is a small number, there has to be an explanation for it, and that theta parameter doesn't have an explanation. So they just think it's ugly. If you just assume it has a very small value, that, ex that, that describes all our observations perfectly fine, but they don't like it. So what they do is they make the theory more complicated, and that explains why this theta parameter is small, but it has the side effect that uh, it also predicts a new particle, which is called the axion. So this is this is not a new story. This uh, was done already in the 1970s, and people looked for this axion particle, and it showed out pretty much as quickly as was uh, predicted. It's just grossly in conflict with astrophysical observations. But what happened next is not that physicists, you know, gave up on this hypothesis. Instead, they amended it so that it would still be compatible with observations. And that's very symptomatic for what would, would follow uh, many times over and over again. So they called this modified axion um, the invisible axion, uh, and there are still experiments looking for it. Um, you, you see an image of such an experiment in, in, in the corner. Um, but none of those experiments have found the axions. The problem is they're invisible. You know, they were created, the, the entire theory was made so that they would be difficult to measure. Also, it's not surprising that they turn out to be difficult um, to measure. Um, there's uh, another type of those failed predictions is, is um, quite related to this. Um, the standard model is not as symmetric as it could be. So you see in, uh, on, the, on the right side, you see a sketch of all the particles in, in the standard model. And it, and it looks kind of, you know, not particularly appealing. It looks a little bit random. Actually, I, I drew this image for my book and I was quite unhappy with it because I thought, ah, yeah, it's, it, it, it doesn't look nice. And I looked online what um, other illustrations people have made. And, there, and you can do this yourself. Just Google the standard model of particle physics, uh, and, and you'd find a lot of illustrations where they use a very nicely symmetric uh, round design. And I thought this would be much nicer, so I tried it, and then I realized it doesn't really make physical sense. You know the way that these particles are paired to each other, and then I realized, you know, I'm, I'm doing exactly what, I, what I'm telling people they shouldn't do. You know, they shouldn't try to make the laws of nature prettier than they actually are. That that's just the way the standard model is, and it it is 
isn't pretty to our eyes, but that's just the way that it is. And so I stuck with this kind of random looking uh, picture with those uh, different groups of particles. But so now what, what a lot of theoretical physicists have done, they were so unhappy with this uh, collection of particles that they try to combine them in one big symmetry group. Um, and that's called a ground unified theory. Uh, and those theories, they're different ones of them, but they generically predict that protons are unstable. So protons are one of the constituents of the atomic nuclei. And the good thing about this is that protons are really, really cheap. They're, they're everywhere around us. Uh, and uh, it's not difficult to... Um, put a large number of them together, for example, in a tank of water and just observe it very, very closely to figure out uh, if one of those um, decays. And uh, so far, no one's seen a single proton decay. And that has actually ruled out some of those uh, grand unified theories. But the same thing happened again as with the axion. Um, physicists have fumbled around with those uh, theories and made them more difficult. Uh, and so there, there are still some of those versions that haven't been ruled out. Um, it's a, a similar story for all kinds of extensions of the standard model. So besides this theta parameter, there's a different, uh, a second parameter in the standard model, which is smaller than physicists would like it to be. That's the mass of the Higgs boson. This is also considered to be ugly. And physicists have put forward a huge number of ways to make it prettier. The best known one may be supersymmetric particles uh, that are supposed to cure this problem, but there have been other ideas like extra dimensions, gravitons. Um, those have um, the side effects that you can have black holes. This, this is the topic that I wrote my PhD um, thesis on, as, as you heard earlier. And, and, and there were loads of uh, other ideas. And those were all predicted on the grounds that the mass of that there's allegedly something wrong with the mass of the Higgs boson. And all those things should have showed up at the LHC basically in the same energy range as the Higgs boson. That, and that just didn't happen. So again, this, this prediction turned out to be wrong. Uh, it's a similar story with uh, a type of particle um, that's called uh, weakly interacting massive particles. And those can be supersymmetric uh, particles, but doesn't have to be. They could also be uh, different ones. Uh, again, this is not a new idea. They um, have been looked for since the 1980s. Um, and every time... Uh, an experiment comes back empty-handed, so they haven't found the particle, then the theoreticians say, well, it's just a little bit more weakly interacting, and, you know, you have to build a bigger detector. And uh, what you see in, in the corner, this image is uh, the Xenon-1 dark matter detector. Uh, that's an upgrade from the Xenon-100, which is an upgrade from the Xenon-10, which is an upgrade from the original Xenon detector. And I just read the other day that there will actually be an upgrade after the Xenon-1T. So this, you know, th uh, theoretically, this could be an infinite story. You can always say, well, it's a little bit more weakly interacting. And why did they think that this particle exists? Because there's a particular numerical coincidence would make, which makes it uh, particularly appealing. And th the original version of this numerical coincidence has long been ruled out, but they just can't give up on this idea. Um, and then um, in, in cosmology, we have allegedly a problem with the cosmological constant. The cosmological constant is also just a constant of nature, but it's very small. And again, physicists don't like this. 
Um, so they have come up with all kinds of difficult explanations for why it's small. Those are particular type of fifth force uh, or um, dark energy fields. Um, and again, they've made lots of predictions for um, how those should show up, but not a single one of them uh, has any evidence to back them up. So I think this this gives you an idea. You know, they they've put forward a lot of theories that have just been ruled out. Uh, and I, in, in in my mind, the reason is that they rely on those arguments from beauty to even develop those theories. So you may ask, like, why should we even believe in those predictions? Uh, and um, yeah, so so why do physicists believe in this? this? This has given me a lot of headache. And I think the reason is, in a nutshell, because they don't think about what they're doing. Um, when you ask them, a lot of them will claim that, well, it worked for Dirac and Einstein because, um, because you know, Dirac and Einstein, they were both talking about the beauty uh, of their theories. And um, right, but that doesn't... Uh, I mean, so, so for one thing, they they both started talking about the beauty of their theories after they knew that the theories uh, were successful. Um, so that that's rather symptomatic. Actually, you still see physicists doing this uh, today. You know, after they've won a Nobel Prize, they become convinced that it was their sense of beauty that led them there. But then that's... Um, uh, uh, somewhat questionable. But even if this was right, it would be cherry-picked data. You know, you have to look at all those people who used arguments from beauty and it didn't work. And so we can have a look at um, some of those ideas. There are plenty of them uh, in, the in, in the foundations of physics where people have used arguments from beauty and it didn't work. Um, the best known one may be the platonic sonnets, which you see in this uh, Wikipedia image. Um, so this was an idea by Kepler that you could stack these uh, polyhedra inside of each other and the ratio between um, the radius of the spheres would tell you the ratio between the orbits of the then known five planets because there are only five of those uh, regular uh, polyhedra. Um, so this is obviously wrong I mean, for various reasons. I mean, to begin with, the uh, orbits of the planets are not uh, circular and also there are more than five planets uh, and so on and so forth. Um, also, the, the circular orbits by themselves were um, considered to be beautiful, but in the end turned out to be uh, wrong. Um, there was a peculiar period in the foundations of physics where uh, quite a large group of physicists became convinced that atoms are actually knots uh, in an invisible ether. And uh, you see an example of a knot there, so what mathemat mathematicians call a knot. Um, you know, there's a certain beauty in this, but this too turned out to be wrong. And there's the steady state universe that basically says the universe has always been this way and will always continue to be this way. And we know today that this is just wrong. Um, there's also, there are a lot of physicists, for example, um, and so on, in their late years, um, try to develop unified theories, and um, all of those turned out to be wrong. And on the other hand, we have ugly ideas that work just fine. For example, quantum mechanics. Um, so personally, I don't think it's ugly, but a lot of people think it's ugly. Um, in quantum field theory, we have a method that's called regularization that um, Dirac, for example, thought uh, just means that uh, 
the quantum electrodynamics, which is one of the quantum field theories, has to be wrong because it relies on this procedure, but it turns out to be correct and uh, we still use it. Use it. Um, those elliptical orbits, I already mentioned this, and uh, the Big Bang, you know, the contrast to um, the steady state model of the universe, uh, that was originally um, considered to be ugly. So um, basically, the short summary is there's no correlation between beauty and explanatory power. Um, so some uh, ideas that work uh, are ugly and other ideas that are beautiful but don't work. There's also no reason to expect that our sense of beauty would give us an edge in developing um, the, the fundamental laws of nature. Evolution just didn't prepare us to look for laws that dictate the behavior of things that we can't even see. Also, this is a point which has been made by the philosopher uh, James McAllister. Standards of beauty change, and this is another reason why you shouldn't start with them. It's just a, it's a cultural thing. It ha also has a lot to do with our education uh, and so on. Um, and, and this means that constructing theories by demanding specific types of beauty um, puts the carriage before the horse. Um, the ideals of beauty change in scientific revolutions and uh, McAllister goes through several examples um, on this. And in my mind, um, it's just doing things the wrong way around. It's describing nature. It's the, it's the success in describing nature that makes a theory beautiful. We shouldn't start with postulating a certain type of beauty and then expect it to describe nature. That evidently just doesn't work. And I think this is why we are in this phase of stagnation in uh, the foundations of physics. Um, we, we ran into a vicious cycle of lacking data because of those sloppy predictions. Um, it's certainly true, as I said at the beginning, that physics is a very mature discipline. And uh, one of the consequences of this is that it takes increasingly more time and money to test new theories. You know, we're, we're shooting satellites uh, into orbits or we're building um, big particle colliders that have um, tens of kilometers of circumference. And uh, those things cost um, tens of billions of dollars and then take uh, decades to build or think of the uh, gravitational wave interferometer, that, that kind of thing. Um, the, that It takes a really long time and um, you, you don't tinker around with experiments of that size. And this means we have to choose really, really carefully uh, which theories to put to test in the first place. If we make a wrong choice, we get negative experimental results, which basically means we don't find anything. Now, negative experimental results are also results, all right. But if you want to develop a new theory, they're not particularly useful results. What you want is you want evidence of new phenomena um, for which you can um, create your theory so that it describes them properly. If you only get ex negative experimental results, you, you aren't any wiser and you're still stuck with the same data you had uh, previously. And so businesses have just gone on this way. You know, they, they don't get any new data. Um, they... Uh, put forward another unpromising theory uh, and that gets tested and back comes another uh, negative result. And uh, so this vicious cycle uh, continues. And I think that's why we, we haven't seen any progress on the foundations of physics um, for 40, 50 years. So uh, my progress proposal uh, would be that we look at what has historically 
worked. So uh, there have certainly been breakthroughs in the foundations of physics that were driven by coincidental discoveries. Uh, and so um, this is just something that we cannot rely on at this point, because as I said, it's uh, it's really difficult to make a new experiment. You, you're not going to find a new theory of nature just by tinkering around with toys on your uh, on your desk. It's just not going to happen. We have to be really, really careful about what kind of experiment uh, we do. So um, the role of uh, theoretical physicists has dramatically changed because we have to be really, really careful what kind of theory to even test. And uh, I think theoretical physicists should focus on resolving real inconsistencies in the theories. So they shouldn't try to make a theory prettier because that didn't lead anywhere and it also doesn't really make sense. Instead, they should try to solve real mathematical problems and lack of beauty just isn't a problem. So now you may wonder, uh, well, what are, what are those real problems that I already mentioned in the beginning? Um, and this, this is not uh, a complete list, of course. The, the, those are just my favorite problems, basically. There's the slacking theory of quantum gravity. So that's really an inconsistency between those two sides uh, in the foundations of physics. There is the measurement problem uh, in, in quantum mechanics that has been known for you know, more, more than a century, but physicists have just completely ignored it. And that's also what, I, what I'm working on myself at the time. Um, there's dark matter. I already said this. This is actually, this is not an internal inconsistency in the theory. It's actually an inconsistency between the theory and uh, the observations. And there are certain aspects of dark matter um, that I would also count as an inconsistency, but it's not the order of magnitude of the cosmological constant. Okay, so this brings me to my summary. Uh, using criteria of beauty to um, assess theories and to develop new theories is just bad scientific methodology. It's not only that it doesn't make any sense, we can also see, if you look at the recent history in physics, that it doesn't work. Um, and I think physicists should stop doing it. <laughs> Thank you for your attention. Thank you so much. Thank you, uh, Sabine, for this great, great uh, conversation. Uh, I'm sure our audience is very intrigued uh, to hear more of you and more about uh, the topic. I would like to encourage everyone to submit their questions in the Q&A. We have a few questions that are pending, some of them philosophical and some of them because you, I think, uh, you motivated them to go to, through the philosophical aspect of the conversation. Some of them is very, it's, are, are technical. So the first question is from Reem Al-Habtari, um, and she's asking you, do you believe that the beauty of physics is fueled from the need to prove the intelligence of the creator of the theory or the lack uh, of belief of simplicity? Because you talked about there is a lack of support of simplicity when you develop a theorem of physics. And she, uh, Reem is asking if it's fueled by um, the necessity to prove intelligence, uh, this kind of egoistic approach or, or just the lack of belief in simplicity. Um, that's a very good question. So I haven't thought about this before. So um, I, I would actually say, let me f answer the second part of the question first, because that, that's easier. Um, 
I think physicists very strongly believe in simplicity. So it's not that they believe in a lack of simplicity. I would actually say that they overemphasize the simplicity. For example, if you look at the theory like string theory, um, which has no experimental evidence uh, to back it up, um, why do theoretical physicists believe in it? Well, they believe in it because it's really simple. It, it starts from this one overarching idea Everything is made of strings and the rest is details, basically. And now if you look at the mathematics, it becomes very difficult. And that's where people can prove they are intelligent, you know, because they're, they're difficult equations uh, to solve. But it starts from this idea that, that everything is simple. Now, when it comes to intelligence, th that's a difficult question because I would say, like, personally, there, there are many different types of intelligence. And one thing which you see very strongly pronounced in, in theoretical physics is, is a, a technical mathematical intelligence. You get people who are really, really do good at doing calculations, and there's also a lot of crossover um, in, in, in the direction of mathematics in both ways, um, actually. Um, and uh, certainly, you know, for in, in string theory, that's uh, that's very pronounced. And there, there isn't a priori anything wrong with that. Um, but if you ask, you know, for the kind of, I would say, pragmatic intelligence, uh, you know, does it actually describe something that we observe? Is it useful for anything? Um, then I, I don't think that pursuing these notions of beauty is a signal for that kind of intelligence because people are completely ignoring this question basically amazing great uh, insight on there and i would like to take charles newman question next and charles is asking and possibly this is also a gateway for us sabine to understand if the ecosystem around us is actually pushing us to over complicate the uh, the way we process physics rather than simplify it um he's saying that have Nobel prize choices in the recent decades been positive or negative from point from your point of view in supporting simplicitic models so um you know, I I think I I'm a little bit a little bit of an outsider uh, when it comes to the um, discussion around the Nobel Prize because I'm generally, you know, I generally like the choices. Um, I I I don't see the Nobel Prize as so much as a statement about what's the, the best exactly. physics or something, but it's more like a. a a public statement, uh, you know, it's it, it has it also has certainly political um, flavor to it, which you can see very clearly in in the in the recent uh, choice for the Nobel Prize, uh, which went to complexity uh, climate physics, uh, that kind of stuff. Um, and one also has to keep in in, in mind that the the things that get Nobel Prizes are, are only the ones that have been confirmed already. Um, so, you know, it's, it's things like um, the observations for dark matter. So we may not know what dark matter is or if it's modified gravity, but we do have those observations. Um, there's been a Nobel Prize for the cosmological constant. There are lots of Nobel Prizes for um, quantum <laughs> stuff that I, I keep uh, mixing up. Um, uh, and, and, and so on and so forth. So, um, and, and for the completion of the standard model and so on, they, they have also in, in the Higgs boson uh, gravitational waves and so on. So, so there have been um, 
um, a Nobel prizes for this. So um, I'm, I'm actually not sure now um, how this e- even connects to what I've been talking about, because the things that I'm, that I'm concerned with are exactly the things for which um, the, the Nobel prizes are missing, so to say, you know, for uh, quantum gravity, like there hasn't been a Nobel prize for quantum gravity. Why not? Well, because we haven't been able to make the good predictions that could, that could actually be tested. So I think what follows here, Sabine, is like, don't we also need to change the ecosystem? Why do we rely on this kind of one formal platform of recognition for all of the scientists around the world? Why don't you have a diverse also recognition platforms so we could push and motivate for this kind of diverse line of thought of thinking of simplistic um, or uh, physics that are um, built around simplicity as well. Okay, so we have uh, Arbi Ted uh, Siraki is saying thank you so much, uh, uh, Sabine, and your book is uh, on my to-read list. In the meantime, he's having a question. Uh, what are the uh, antecedents uh, and uh, aspirations behind your ideas? Any connections to Thomas Kohn, for example, for instance? What inspires you? So, 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 you, so you mean about the argument in the book or like the stuff that I do my own research on? I'm kind of not clear. Maybe let's go through the different parts that maybe he, I think he means the book in general. Um, okay. Well, the, the, so, I mean, I've, I've certainly read a lot about, uh, you know, the uh, philosophy of science and also sociology of science. And so, uh, honestly, I always feel like the philosophy of science makes more sense if you look at it from the uh, sociological perspective. So I think it's somewhat of a mistake to treat these two things uh, as separate. But, you know, then, then this is my opinion as someone who actually works in science. So I find it very difficult to to. to tear these things apart. So uh, I'm a little bit unhappy with what's going on uh, in in uh, the philosophy uh, of science and, and, you know, what the way that uh, people like uh, Kuhn and Lakatos uh, and so on uh, have been going about things, because it's not something that um, we can pragmatically put to use, at least not most of us. So um, physicists, for the most part, just ignore all this talk, like uh, what's the use of talking about paradigm changes or, you know, uh, degenerative research programs. Um, If in your day-to-day work, that's not something uh, that you can integrate somehow. And so I think with my book, I've I've tried to explain to people in in my own area, but also to other people, um, that we have to add a little bit more self-reflection. You know, we have to think about where are we, where do we want to go? Um, are our methods actually getting us there? Because all, all this talk about scientific methodology is well and fine, but the, the scientific method is not set in stone. You know, it has to adapt as we learn new things. Um, we, ha- we, we learn new mathematical techniques. Um, we learn that some things that we did previously were wrong or they didn't work. And I, th- I think that, that physicists have to be a little bit more open-minded there and um so yeah so i I hope this explains how i fit into this (laughs) corner between sociology philosophy and uh, research it's a so want me to say about my own research or um yeah yeah please please go ahead yeah so uh, so I'm, i'm i'm mostly i'm trying to listen to myself you know if i if i tell people um it would be good if we focused on solving 
problems of uh, inconsistency in the foundations. Um, I'm trying to do this myself, uh, which shouldn't be too surprising because the reason I was writing this book was to find out what I should spend my own time on. You know, I, I, I started working on theories that um, used exactly those ideals of beauty that I've been criticizing. And I was trying to figure out, well, how can I do it better? You know, what, what would be a better way to go about it? And so you probably won't be surprised to hear that the things that I've myself been working on are the quantization of gravity, though I'm not doing this at the moment, but this is something that I've been doing for a long time and especially how to experimentally test it. I'm now mostly working on dark matter and uh, on the quantum measurement problem. Amazing, amazing. So you're basically defending or reviving the the research aspects that connects to you to simplicity and beauty of physics. Amazing. Um, well, I'm, I'm trying to. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. It's like a physics preservation project from a different perspective. Um, so we have a, another question as well uh, from Mohammed Had Youssef, and he's asking, "What do you think about?" Uh, uh, monodology, um, since the monad being uh, metaphysical, uh, would be the simplest structure from which the complex physical structure could be composed. Yeah, so I, I, I suppose this refers to um, Leibniz's um, uh, uh, idea. Um, <laughs> I, I've always found it personally very appealing um, so you have this unity, basically, of nature. I mean, it's a very simple idea in a sense, but I, I'm also very much a maths person. <laughs> you know, I need to see equations, something that I can work with, uh, something that I can make, you know, make a prediction with. And I, I've never managed to combine this appealing but vague idea with the concrete side of mathematics got it very clear so Bl vladimir milosevic uh, he's asking wouldn't conjecture of maxwell's equation qualify as as driven by search for beautiful elegant uh, systematic laws no sorry symmetrical laws um i would agree based uh, on such example that it worked in the past well, as I said, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. Um, you, it, it's not a good argument. You only look at the cases where it did work. But I would mm -hmm. also, so a little bit, so, so the, the development of uh, Maxwell's equations, that, that's a really long story. And there were lots of, you know, <clears throat> things that played together. But a lot of it was just driven by experiment. You know, they, they observed all these things, uh, electrical charges, uh, electric field, magnetic fields, and so on. And, and Faraday and Maxwell, uh, Faraday was very, he was a very graphic thinker, you know, he was uh, drawing lines and, and, and that kind of stuff. And, and Maxwell was the person to put it into equations. Uh, and yes, then those equations wouldn't really fit together. And he had to introduce this additional term, which led to, le eventually led to the prediction of uh, gravitational radiation. So um, that's a great story. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that Maxwell was driven a lot by um, beauty. At least I'm not aware 
um, that he would have brought this up. To some extent, I think if I remember uh, Maxwell, this is actually an, an example in the book from McAllister that I mentioned. Uh, McAllister lived in a time where mechanism was uh, still quite popular. So people had this idea that everything ultimately is like little gears and things interlocking into each other. And he had this very complicated idea how those field lines would come about by some interlocking gear system. And I've forgotten the details. And um, it, it, it took people quite some while to accept electric and magnetic fields as primary to just say, well, that's just the way that it is. There's no further underlying mechanical explanation. So that was actually uh, considered to be ugly. You know, they were they were looking for something <laughs> prettier, you know, something that you could uh, turn a knob on or something like this. So um, McAllister's books is, is, is really, really um, useful for shedding light on, on the question, just how Maxwell thought about uh, beauty. So we always have to understand origins from your perspective. And I love that kind of social aspect uh, to understand it. So Kumal Tariq is asking, or she's asking, a lot of things in nature have order and uh, are generally beautiful. Uh, the golden ratios is one example. Do you think maybe this is why physicists uh, try to fit everything into such a standard? Um, is it... Um, is it not just proper scientific methodology to try and make sure that everything fits into rules and patterns we have been over and over testing or I, I think using over and over again? Uh, wouldn't it be irresponsible to not consider that unbeautiful data could have something missing in it? So what about the flip of the coin? Uh, going by this, wouldn't theories led by beauty actually be important? So um, it's not so much that I'm generally against beauty. I, I, I have to put this ahead. It's that I'm that I'm saying we shouldn't start with very specific notions of beauty that physicists have come up with for some peculiar reason and then they have formulated them in mathematical terms and now they're getting stuck on them. Like, for example, this notion of technical naturalness or uh, grand unifications. There may be other types of beauty um, which we just haven't discovered and if we continue doing what we've been doing so far, we'll never discover them because we keep doing the wrong experiments. Um, but... Um, I mean, I, I agree in so far that um, science is all about discovering, covering patterns. You know, that, that's basically the only thing we do. But do these patterns have to appeal to the sense of beauty that we are born with? I think there's no particular reason. For example, um, our, our perception that symmetry is beautiful in, in certain ways that very plausibly has evolutionary origins because um, organisms that are symmetric are more likely to be healthy. So this is mm -hmm. something that, that we watch out for. And, you know, I'm, 
I, I'm not a biologist and I don't know a lot about this, but I think this is roughly um, the way that it works. But why should those notions of beauty that work for flowers also tell us something about uh, the fundamental particles in the standard model? Um, there, there's just no good reason for this. But of course, those fundamental theories, um, they, may, they may have other types of beauty that we just haven't thought about so far. Amazing, amazing. And I can't wait until we see the impact of this kind of inclusive methodology of adapting all of the simple and beauty and complex physics all together when you are building a research aspect. So my question this time, because I think we addressed a lot of the audience question and I had a question for you. You said that there has been limitations and challenges in the past because of the availability of data when it comes to building certain analysis. My question for you, would you think that an element of a crowdsourcing science is a viable solution to build more collaborative systems and ecosystem around resolving uh, specific research aspects in physics. We thought, we've, we've seen through the pandemic, researchers uh, really capitalizing on this kind of crowdsourcing uh, for scientific notions and scientific ideas to accelerate, for example, genomics analysis and simulation and whatnot. Do you see it happening in physics? Maybe to have accessibility to data, uh, accessibility to multiple, uh, I would say, diverse approaches of research. You talked about Maxwell, um, you know, being the theorist and um, uh, and his colleague being um, the practical aspects of, of of the experiment. So, is can you can you see uh, crowdsourcing science as as a as a positive tool or a negative tool in improving the data accessibility? So uh, generally, I would say it's a positive tool. The question is always, um, do researchers think it's worth the time, um, right? So uh, when it comes, for example, to the data accessibility, this is something which has been discussed, like, I don't know, since since, since I've been in physics. And it's slowly getting better uh, because a lot of publishers now require that you make your um, data available, at least in principle, they should require it. Um, and for what large collaborations are concerned, um, that's the thing, you know, you, you, it's usually um, possible for you to get your hands on the data. May, there may be a delay, like um, two years or something, where the collaboration um, has um, the, you know, the, the chance to get all of it out of the data that uh, that they wanted to. And, and that makes sense, you know, they have kind of a... Um, you know, they, they had the work, so so now they should have the right um, to do what they want to do first, and then other people uh, can have their go. Um, when it comes to uh, smaller institutions, it's it also depends very strongly on the country. Um, then it may be very difficult to get your hands on the data. Um, and, and there are various reasons. Maybe they're concerned about competition or maybe they um, just don't uh, know how to present the data. That's also a problem. I mean, usually the thing is you have a lot of raw data <clears throat> that is completely useless if you don't know exactly what the experiment looks like. Um, so normally the, the data that you can share with other people has to be cleaned in some way so that, that, that other people can even work with it. And they may not have the resources to even do this. And so the easiest thing is to just not do it. 
Um, so that's one thing. But also, I, I, I'm very much on the theoretical side. And I think in the, on the theoretical side, this is something that <laughs> this sometimes keeps me up at night. I have this impression that all the knowledge that we need to solve those problems is out there somewhere. You know, someone has, has found it already. It's just that no one has been able to connect it. And, um, it, it, and this is something where I think that artificial intelligence can actually help us make a lot of progress because there must be connections in the published literature that you can find out um, just mechanically by figuring out who cites who in which connection and, and which are the links that haven't been made. And this mm. is really something that I wish someone uh, would look into. I know this, this has been done a little bit in other fields, like in, in chemistry, they've been looking for um, certain molecules that uh, have certain properties and they could predict this <laughs> from the published literature and made actually made correct predictions. Totally amazing. And I, I think in principle, this is something that should be doable in, in, in all fields and, and it could unlock a lot of progress. I think I'll take uh, your note and your call to heart because uh, <laughs> it's a very dear notion for us. I work for women in AI as well, global community, and we do have researchers in the field searching for a great impact, especially in science uh, that they could work on a great impact project. And I think this is a great impact project. And this is why I suggested crowdsourcing, because then you develop uh, an accessibility to an open data platform. You might not be interested in processing the data, but there might be other entities who would be interested in just cleaning the data, processing it, and providing it for scientists like yourself and others. So I am so happy. We're all so happy and inspired. I think we go home with a, a huge level of excitement and insight, uh, and insight for what you have delivered tonight about the balance in between simplicity and beauty when it comes to, to, to physics. And I would call it balance because I could hear the inclusive call in your tone when you said, I'm not saying that we should do simplicity and, and discard beauty, or, uh, but try to strike a balance and not be uh, omitting the possibilities and potentials that exist in the future. You talked about what keeps you up at night. And I want to ask you for your final, uh, you know, any final words that you want to tell us about what keeps you up at night and excitement of what would build a better field um, for, for physicists like yourself and for your team. Well, um, you know, the, I'm afraid the things that keep me up at night are, are most, uh, most often more negative things. So now I'm trying to think of something uh, positive, forward-looking. So, um, yeah, for example, I, I actually think I'm, I'm much more optimistic about progress in the foundations of physics than most of my colleagues, because most of them have this point of view that we're like really, really close to finding a theory of everything. And that'll be the end of the story. And uh, I, I don't think that's going to happen. I think uh, we're going to solve one of those problems, like one of the big problems, and that will just open up an entirely new area of research. And it will also bring a lot of technological progress um, that will allow us to develop new experiments. And, and uh, I, I don't think we're any, anywhere near done with the foundations of physics. 
It must be inspiring not only for people in physics, but everyone who is working in industry and technology around our audience. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. It has been a pleasure. I'd like to also extend my thanks to the Institute for hosting you tonight, Dr. Sabine hosen Polder. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu/institute.